Hello, I am your host, Mike Gelb, and welcome to the Consumer VC, where we're going to be diving into the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. Our guest today is Paul Martino, managing partner of Bullpen Capital, an early-stage post-seed venture fund investing in technology companies that have been funded by super angels and institutional seed funds. Some of their portfolio companies include FanDuel, Namely, and Ipsy. Prior to founding Bullpen, Paul was a serial entrepreneur and founded Apa Software, Tribe, and Aggregate Knowledge. He is a holder of over a dozen core patents covering social networking and big data. He was also an active angel investor and personally invested in their first rounds of Zynga, TubeMogul, and Udemy. It was such a blast having Paul, and I felt like I learned so much. So without further ado, here's Paul. Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show today. How are you? Living the dream every day. How about you? <laughs> doing well, doing well. So you've been a successful serial entrepreneur, and then you switched over to becoming a venture capitalist. What what attracted you originally to entrepreneurship, and then and then to switch over to the actual venture capital side? So uh, I I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I always wanted to be my own boss. I mean, I was that kid at six or seven years old who literally was sitting there going, I don't understand why am I in school? Why am I doing this? Why is this all in my way? Like, I want to I want to go start my own thing and do my own thing. And so I, I never wanted to do anything but be an entrepreneur from the youngest possible age. I started my first little computer game company from my bedroom when I was 14 years old and started selling shareware BBS games. You're probably too young to know what all that is, but uh, back in the day, it was pretty cool. That's awesome. That's awesome. And so what then attracted you? Because obviously you've had some successful exits. What attracted you to switch over to the venture capital side of things? Okay, so here's the funny part. Actually, nothing. I never wanted to be a venture capitalist. I never liked the people in the venture business. I thought that they were the sellouts and the real people in the ecosystem were the entrepreneurs. And so I got offered a bunch of venture jobs in, in, the, in the late you know, 08, 09, 10 timeframe as I was stepping down as CEO of my last company. And Mike Maples at Floodgate says, no, 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 Martino, dude, you'd be good at this. The whole business has changed. I was like, no, nah, Mike, I'm going to go start my next company. You know, you, I, I don't really want to be in the venture business. But what Mike told me was the important thing. He says, don't you understand the whole venture business is being reorganized? The venture business is now being dominated by former operators. And this whole new thing called Seed is really going to take over. And so I spent a year actually thinking about what company I would start next. And part of the brainstorming with my two buddies, Rich Melman and Duncan Davidson, was about what was going to happen once they went from 20 seed funds to 200. And so I reluctantly started the fund because it was the only way to capitalize on my entrepreneurial instinct, which was that the venture business was going to get disrupted. And so if venture was a status quo business, I would have never gotten into it because I really didn't want to go into a status quo business. But we went into venture because we thought there were some, able, some ways that we could actually be disruptive. And bullpen has certainly been that. So I never wanted the job, but now I got it 10 years later. Who knew? I'm glad that you mentioned that about how, how venture capital has changed, where now a lot more operators and founders have, have kind of gotten into venture capital. Do you see a difference in venture capitalists that come from a traditional finance background than those that come from an entrepreneurial background, such as yourself? Absolutely. And I, I, if I'm a young entrepreneur and I have two term sheets and one is from a finance person and one is from a former operator, I know who's going to win that deal almost every time. Uh, and I tell that to, to the young analysts who come and work at my office. Say, you want to be successful in this business? You have an analyst job here. You're learning the business. 
um, after a year or two here, go, go start a company, go, go be a VP of something. Uh, one of my partners went and left and became the COO of one of our companies. I was like, that's exactly what I want you to go do. Because if you don't have that on your resume, I don't know how you win a competitive term sheet in the future world where you're up against people who look like Mike Maples and Josh Koppelman and now guys like me and Duncan and Rich too, the guys who started our fund. Me, Duncan and Rich together started, I think, 14 companies. I mean, would you rather my term sheet or the term sheet from someone who has uh, never done anything but sat on a board and has a finance degree? That makes that makes total sense. How do you think then, because there's been, you know, the terminology of a lot of funds being founder friendly. What does founder friendly mean to you? Do you think that founder friendly only really exists on, well, first of all, do you like the term? Do you hate the term? Do you think that founder friendly only really exists on uh, former operators such as yourself when you understand the trials and tribulations that founders go through? I definitely think that's where it came from. You go think about the people who started talking about founder friendly firms, uh, terms. Koppelman at first round, one of the first people to really popularize the phrase. These are former operators. And it isn't so much that the terms are friendly, it's that there's an alignment of interest with your early stage investor and what the company needs to scale. And by the way, I think it becomes increasingly difficult to be founder friendly the later stage the company gets. You know, it's a pre-seed company with uh, uh, two, two guys, a gal, and a PowerPoint, you know, boy, it's easy to be aligned when you're the early stage investor there. And maybe when it's 10, 12 people and you're making a million in revenue, like when Bullpen invests, it's pretty well to be aligned there. But you start raising your two, $300 million rounds from, from, from the growth equity firms, the insights, the KKRs, it becomes a lot more difficult to be founder friendly because the company is taking money from a different source. There are different covenants, et cetera. So I think founder friendly is an awesome world but it only really applies to early stage endeavors. That's very insightful. So I'm glad that you touched on bullpen. Bullpen invests in post-seed. And one of the criteria that you list uh, is that it, is that you invest after a company finds that product market fit. What are some data points that establish that a company, that a consumer company has found product market fit for you? So the consumer one is the hardest one. We basically underwrite four business models of bullpen. We underwrite e-commerce, we underwrite B2B SaaS, uh, we underwrite marketplaces. And in all of those, it's much easier to give you the chapter and verse for what the minimum kind of thresholds are in terms of revenue, retention, et cetera. The SaaS ones are the easiest ones. I want to see at least a million in revenue. I want to see a churn number less than this, et cetera, et cetera. The consumer one is the one that has the big asterisk because sometimes you go into a consumer business and it's all just about how many uh, downloads an app might have. So, for example, we went into Life360 when they had down, 5 million people had downloaded their, their little tracker app. Well, you know, now years and years later, they have 100 million users and the company went public in Australia. But we invested there where there were 5 million downloads and no revenue. And so the consumer underwriting rules are kind of complicated in that you have to be able to kind of eyeball it and say, wow, you have enough customer adoption to say that that really looks like product market fit, even if you aren't monetizing. Uh, and that's where the art meets the science. No, that makes a lot of sense. So what, what does it take to raise a Series A from a seed round? And what are some of the reasons why a company that has raised a seed failed to raise a Series A? So a big thing happened over the last 10 years we've been in business. Bullpen's been in business for about nine years. It'll be 10 years next year. We started in 2010. Uh, and what we saw back then was if there were 20 or 30 seed funds, which by the way, there were only 20, 30 seed funds back then, there's now 800. We thought there'd be 200 in a couple of years, which is my joke to Mike Maples at Floodgate. Now there's almost a thousand. So even, even our, even our ballsy prediction of 10 X growth was wrong. It was 20, 25 X growth. 
So our whole thinking was actually pretty mathematical and pretty straightforward. If you go from 20 seed funds to 200 seed funds and the Series A funds get bigger and bigger, there's going to be an increasing gap between the metrics required for the Series A uh, term sheets and what the seed companies are able to do. And so back when we started the fund, you'd raise $500,000 in seed and the Series A person would want to see, you know, 100, 200,000 in revenue. And you're like, wow, I need another six to 12 months. Now it's even worse. The seed deals are two, three, four, five million dollars in seed money. And the Series A uh, firms want to see five million in revenue. So what do you do if you're a company that raised a three million dollar seed? You're doing a million to two million in revenue. Everything's up and to the right, but everybody says come back in another 12 months. We figured that out 10 years ago. It was just a mathematical certainty based on the supply and demand of money. Uh, it wasn't that we were, um, it had some genius insight. It's that we, I think we were one of the only firms out there asking the question, how could you deal with this imbalance of capital across the stages? And that's why we quit our day jobs and started the fund in 2010. I actually had a similar conversation on another episode with uh, Mike Gaffari from uh, Canvas, who talks about how there's uh, this swell in and so many of these micro funds and seed funds and then also the series b and 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 the growth equity funds but the series a or you know the post seed there's a bit of a gap there it's been very surprising to us you would think that the gap would have closed over the last 10 years our original pitch we thought well look we'll do a fund or two maybe three we'll clean up in those first fund or two because other people will come in the gap will close the arbitrage will go away 10 years in, the gap is bigger than it was than when we started the fund. And that to me is one of the amazing, uh, uh, amazing mysteries of bullpen. The gap is bigger now than 10 years ago. And, you know, we'll do fund five next year. We'll do fund six, seven, eight, nine. I don't think there'll be any stopping this because the imbalance is now structural and permanent in my mind. It, and, and there's just, you just, it's like a barbell. You've got, you've got two things on either side. You have a massive volume of seed and pre-seed funds on one side, and you have a massive volume of, quote, Series A funds that are really growth funds on the other side. And if you're stuck on that bar, your options are few and far between. I do not see that changing for another decade. That's fascinating. So you think that this arbitrage opportunity at investing in the post-seed Series A level will, will continue to exist for, the, for another 10 years. What are some of like the big challenges when investing in consumer company uh, versus an enterprise company. Well, consumer is consumer is a really different thing. And by the way, our fund is um, agnostic. So, uh, just as an example, we we did namely in HR software, and we did FanDuel and Fantasy Sports. We did Grove and consumer home goods, uh, and we did Reniac and data center acceleration software. Right. So, so our fund will kind of do anything, uh, and the consumer stuff is much more fickle. It grows faster when you catch it. But when it stubs its toe, it's almost, uh, it's almost like there's nothing you can do. So, so consumer is much higher beta. Those deals tend to be more competitive than the B2B SaaS type deals. Uh, and it tends to be more binary in outcome. Uh, but they tend also to be our fastest growers. When we go look at the companies that are the biggest breakouts in our funds, the early breakouts are almost always consumer because you really have those network effects of customer acquisition being cheap for the people who figure it out. 
Uh, but slow and steady wins the race a lot of times in venture returns. And a lot of our late bloomers are our enterprise company. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. I mean, I was I was talking with uh, Hayden Williams, who said that, you know, what he thinks the beauty, which I think is both exciting and also uh, terrifying, is that consumers ultimately are fickle. What are some qualities they look for in founders? Of course, when you invest, they, there's obviously some data there since it's post-seed. So you do have some metrics. But, you know, it's still very, very much, I'm sure, about the founder and the founding team. And it, and it comes back to that. So what are some qualities that you like to look for uh, in founders and ca- that checks all your boxes? So the biggest criteria for our, our CEOs, we use this phrase, blue collar. And where did we get that phrase from? My CEO coach is the late Bill Campbell. I was one of Bill's last students, uh, Randy Komisar from Kleiner, twisted his arm and said, look, you're going to like this guy, Martino. And the reason he took me on as one of his last students in his illustrious career, everybody from Larry Page to Steve Jobs to Eric Schmidt, he met me, he said, look, you're just a, you're just a Philly kid, uh, grew up in the suburbs, and you kind of want to prove everybody wrong and tell everybody, uh, go F off, you're my kind of kid. That sounds really bizarre, but that's the characteristic that Bill taught me to look for in my entrepreneurs. Do you have a chip on your shoulder? Do, do, are you hungry? Do you have something to prove? Are you unsatisfied? That is the characteristic we're looking for. We're looking for those, those, those kids who have that kind of chip on their shoulder. And we use the phrase blue collar and people mis- misinterpret that sometimes. They're like, I don't understand. How can you be blue collar? You went to Princeton. Trust me, you can be blue collar and have gone to Princeton. And by the way, you could have gone to state school and be a silver spooner. So, so it's, it's a very much an internal characteristic about you, not about how much wealth your family grew up with. It, it's how are you motivated? What kind of person are you on the inside? So if we find a CEO who's blue collar, and again, it doesn't matter where you went to school or how much money you're from for our definition of the world, and has great mastery of their numbers, that's the CEO we love. So show me you got a chip on your shoulder. Show me you know know the numbers of your business. That's who we look for at Bullpen. Wow, that's a great description and one that we haven't heard yet in those terms on this podcast. When should a founder switch from optimizing for growth to optimizing for profitability? And what do you think about like good growth metrics versus really bad growth metrics. Okay, so, so the first one, I think you need to be a bit cognizant of what your market conditions are and what your optionality of the dollars in the bank are. So if you are a company and you just raised $20 million and you're burning $200,000 a month, go for growth because guess what? You're being subsidized to go for growth. Now, on the other hand, if you're a company that is on its last million dollars from its $5 million in financing and it's burning 300,000 a month, guess what you better be thinking about? You better be thinking about profitability. One of the reasons we like the post-seed round is the post-seed round allows the CEO to take a small amount of money, call it three to 5 million bucks, and then have the optionality to figure out, wow, I really have this figured out, let's go put the gas on the pedal and go get 25 million in growth. Or you know what, that's all the money I'm gonna take, let's get it to break even and let's go sell the company. Uh, and that's one of the things that the post-seed round will do. Your, your, your preference stack in the company is still only six, seven, eight million dollars. So you as CEO have what we call exit optionality to figure out what it is makes the most sense for you. Uh, so we like companies that at the end of 12 months could answer the question either way. I'm going to go for broke on growth or I'm going to get to break even. And we will only really underwrite a company if we feel both of those options are available. That's a really good way to think about growth and profitability and especially as it relates to your stage. When raising money from VCs, what are some questions that entrepreneurs of venture backable businesses should be asking themselves? They should be asking themselves, is my business a venture business? 
is my business a business that can grow fast enough that I should take on venture money? Turns out the vast majority of businesses aren't venture businesses. You know, businesses that can grow three to five X year over year, can get to 100 million in revenue, whatever the metrics end up being. Um, a lot of businesses aren't venture businesses. Do, do I want money from a venture capitalist? Do I want to give up control? Do I want a third party on my board who I've just met? Uh, there's a whole bunch of questions about how you plan on running your company that you should ask yourself if it's compatible with the product being offered by venture. Because in general, the, the product offered by venture is a pretty narrow product. I completely agree. Those are some great points. So what are some of the questions as well that entrepreneurs should be asking venture capitalists? Remember, you're in a sales process. You're out there selling the stock of your company. I encourage entrepreneurs all the time. Remember, you are in a sales process. You need to be asking me qualifying questions. How big is your fund? What's your average check size look like? Do you invest in the geography for where my company is? So tip to you guys who are listening, anybody listening, make sure that you do the sales qualification that you would do in any enterprise sale, because guess what you're doing? You're selling the securities of your company. Uh, and so, so don't be afraid to make sure that you ask some of those questions when you come into my office too. Yeah, absolutely. When a, a startup is raising and maybe they've attracted uh, a very large fund uh, to invest maybe at the seed level, should they be wary if they, if they decide to, ch to go with that fund about um, follow on capital, just in case the, the fund won't actually exercise their, their pro rata rights and follow on? Absolutely. And it's not, it's not a, what we've learned 10 years in is not only is the signaling risk real, the signaling risk is actually a sliding scale as opposed to a black or white. I frequently get the question, well, should I take the money from the early stage investor if, and, and if they don't invest, then I'm in trouble? Well, you know, if you're going to take $100,000 and, and if that company doesn't follow on, you're in big trouble, that's a really bad idea. But if half your seed is going to be a million and a half of the three is coming from that firm, well, guess what? They're just a seed investor at this point. And so the dangerous spot is you do the party round with a couple hundred thousand dollar checks from seed from non-seed investors, more series A investors, and then everybody looks to them for the follow-on. And they didn't give you enough money to get you anywhere. That's the spot I'd really encourage you to stay out of. If you have a traditional series A B fund who really likes you and wants to take on a seed deal here and there, if they're gonna write you a big enough check, great, treat them like a seed investor. But don't take their $100,000, I love you, I want to get to know you, because that can be a real trap, as you just described. Got it. No, that's, yeah, that, that, that's very insightful. Uh, well, I know that you're based in Philadelphia, but uh, Bullpen is based in the Bay Area. What, what makes the Philadelphia startup ecosystem interesting to you? Well, so uh, the Philadelphia ecosystem is small. Uh, there aren't a ton of companies here. The number of universities in the area and the lifestyle afforded to the entrepreneurs here is outstanding. It, it's where I grew up. I grew up in Lansdale. I went to Lehigh and Princeton. I spent 13 years in Silicon Valley. And my wife and I had a deal. When, we, when we're going to have kids, we're going to raise them somewhere normal. And so we moved back here, and we're very pleased with our decision. And so there's a trade-off, though. I mean, the Philadelphia ecosystem is not like the Silicon Valley ecosystem. The number of companies is smaller. The number of law firms, the number of venture firms is smaller. But there's a small group. We know each other well. First round's here. We're here. There's a, there's a whole bunch of other groups. There's Emerald Stage 2. There's, um, uh, there's the Gabriel Ventures group. There's a whole bunch of people here. We all get together every summer. Uh, and it, it's a small cottage industry to some extent. I think there are some vertical markets that Philadelphia has been very good at, in particular in life sciences. And my hope is that Philadelphia gets known for 
being one of the, the, the big markets to do sports, gaming, and gambling. When you think about how close we are to New Jersey and Atlantic City and sports betting getting legalized, I think the area that we could see the Philadelphia ecosystem really get involved in is in sports and betting. And our friends at 76 Capital actually just had their big conference on sports, gaming, and gambling. And I, I think that's something you could see a lot of in Philadelphia with this passion that we have for our sports teams and, and with the legalization now in both the states of Pennsylvania and New Jersey. That makes sense given its proximity to Atlantic City, why Philadelphia might become a, a big hub for uh, sports, gambling, and betting. Do you believe that in this digital age where you have a lot of digital communication options that you can live anywhere and invest anywhere? So I largely agree with that. I can be anywhere as an investor, but I do think that you need to be able to invest anywhere as well. Uh, as much as I'm a big fan of a lot of the rise of the rest stuff that Steve Case is doing, a lot of the contrarian investing he's doing, uh, we align a lot with the vision of that. We like founders who might have gone to unsexy schools or in unsexy geographies or in categories nobody likes. But you know what? There's a lot of founders in San Francisco, too, who are in categories nobody likes, and there's a lot of good deals to do there, too. 50% of our portfolios in San Francisco, even though we're highly contrarian investors. And so if you live in Philly, you better be able to invest anywhere. And if you live in LA for the lifestyle that's afforded to you, I think you make a big mistake if you write off San Francisco because you're in LA. And so I think our firm has kind of figured this out after a decade. Be where you want to be, but be able to, be able to invest anywhere and don't have geographic restrictions. I think that really undermines the ultimate return of your fund. So should founders care about where their investors are actually located? Well, sure. And it depends on the stage of the company too. I mean, if you're in a pre-seed company that doesn't have a product out and, and your early stage investor is a hands-on product person, you want that person to be literally down the street from you, right? You want that person to be uh, uh, in your neighborhood. Um, so we have a rule too, by the way, to, to help answer that question. So we just did a deal called uh, a Flex Engage in uh, Orlando. It was the first deal we ever did in Florida. And I told the founder who I'd known for a couple of years, companies making a couple million in revenue, it's a traditional post-seed deal. I said, look, I can help you. I'm going to help you run your company. I'm going to teach you everything that Bill Campbell taught me. But I need a local investor there to tag team on this. And so when we do a deal that's in a city we've never been in, I interviewed his existing investor syndicate as much as I interviewed him because I needed to make sure I had local presence there uh, uh, for Tomas, the CEO, because I can't always be in Orlando. I live in Florida and my office is in San Francisco. Uh, I, I live in Philadelphia, my office is in San Francisco. I don't stop in the Florida all that often. But now he can get me on the phone anytime. As a matter of fact, over the weekend, he had an urgent matter. I talked to him at two o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. That's fine. But that's what you need. You need the combination of both some local people who know the market you're in and operate, as well as some people who really know how to play the venture game. And I like to team up on those deals. And we will not do a deal in another new city like a Miami that we're not in or, or say, in Austin where we, we, we don't currently have a deal unless I've got a local investor I can really lean on to help me do some of the stuff I can't do because I'm on remote. No, I think that's, that's wow. That's actually a really good point. I've never heard someone uh, talk about more of like a, having more of like an operating partner or interviewing uh, their investors that are actually local to the area. Uh, that's, that's, that, that's really interesting uh, for, for markets that, that you don't um, maybe know or, or, or just don't have any companies in. Uh, so what are, what are some consumer trends that you're excited about currently? You know, it's funny. We're, we're a funny fund. We, we, don't, we don't ask questions like that at our office. 
So, so I love when I get asked to tell me three themes that you're invested in. We're, we're, we're not thematic investors. We're not future predictors. I actually am very jaded about the industry for this reason. You heard me say at the beginning, I never wanted to be in venture because whenever I thought of venture, I always thought of somebody standing up on a conference and telling me what the world was going to be like in 10 years. And quite frankly, that person never, ever once being right. And so we stay away from that prognostication game. What are trends we like, et cetera? We actually like trends that nobody else likes. We like to do stuff that you're the one entrepreneur, as we say, quote, dumb enough to go do this idea. We love that company. Uh, so so we, we are anti-thematic. We like to go against the trends and we don't try and prognosticate about the future. Uh, I think most venture funds do it that way. I think most venture funds are wrong when they do it that way. I would much rather get educated by the CEOs who come into my office about what trends I need to know about than have my own preconceived notions of what they should be. Uh, you're actually the first one on the guest to respond in, uh, in that way. What's one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital? Uh, I, I, would, I would change the, the, the way that the whole screening process and interview process is done. Um, there are a lot of deals that, that nobody ever looks at because the CEO went to the wrong school or the company is in Cincinnati, Ohio. I mean, I really get very mad at a lot of my venture brethren. When I, I'll look at a deal, I'll put a couple million dollars in and the company will go from a million to 2 million in revenue. And then a year later, they're at eight to 10 million in revenue. And all the venture people are calling me up going, Paul, Paul, can you introduce me to that company? I'm like, you realize that CEO was trying to get a meeting with you for two years and you, and you blew him or her off. I mean, one of the great examples of this was Spot Hero in Chicago. Uh, we ended up doing that deal with Chicago Ventures. Uh, and the Chicago Ventures, our local investor, uh, a guy named Stuart Larkin. So we did the typical bullpen thing. Stuart did a part of the deal. We did a part of the deal. I became CEO coach of Mark Lawrence. And, you know, Mark had literally mail after mail after mail after mail. Big fund, big fund, Series A fund. They didn't even reply to his mails. And then once the company became sexy and cool, all of a sudden they're all inbounding. They're all asking me for an introduction. I'm like, do you mind if I forward you the mails from Mark where you blew him off and didn't even respond to him? And why was that? He was in Chicago, he was doing parking and he, and, 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 and he didn't go to a fancy school. That really bothers me. That's something I would really like to change in venture because you hear a lot about the diversity and inclusion aspects of venture. But in my mind, this isn't so much about uh, what, what race and gender you are. It's much more about the elitism of where you went to school, who you know, et cetera. That part of the business, I, I really get aggravated by. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's a lot of also discussion on Twitter about that, about inclusion versus uh, exclusion in, in venture capital. So how do you feel about founders cold emailing or uh, cold, cold, should they, or waiting in order to find maybe an intro, an, uh, someone for an, an introduction to a, to a venture capitalist? As you're going to guess, we are the opposite of everybody else. I think something like 20% of the deals we've done, we've done 120 deals. I think 20% of the deals we've ever done in the history of our fund were cold emails where none of us knew the CEO. 20%. Like, I think you'll talk to most funds, they've never once done a deal like that, not 20% of their portfolio. And the other thing that happens then too is a lot of people come to us in the seed stage and they're like, I want to establish a relationship with you. And I look at them funny. I go, you don't need a relationship with me. When you're ready, come in and pitch me. I don't need to know you for a year. I find it very funny that a lot of firms are like, well, we won't invest in the CEO unless we've known them for a year or two. 
geez, I, I, I would have missed out on my best deals if I had to know the CEO for a year. If you're ready to pitch, you've got the numbers, you got a chip on your shoulder, come into my office, I'll get you an answer in a week or two. I don't need to know you for three years. And it doesn't matter that so-and-so introduced you or not. Your deck and you speak for yourself. Uh, and, and I highly encourage anybody, send us a mail on LinkedIn, send me an email, Paul at Bullpen Capital, right? My email address is what it should be. I wish more funds operated that way, but most funds are what was the lineage of the deal? Who made the introduction? Where'd the founder go to school? No, absolutely. I mean, when I've, when I've uh, brought up that question, uh, I think most, m- most respondents have said 1% came from a cold email or from someone they don't know. So 20%, I'm, I'm pretty impressed and shocked to be honest. Uh, and as you know, I'm, I'm quite a big fan of the cold email as I cold emailed you to, uh, to, to have you come on the show. So thank you. Uh, so what's, what's one of your favorite books that has impacted you personally and one that has impacted you professionally? Well, the, the professional one is easy. It's called Play Bigger by my friends at Play Bigger, which is a, a, a marketing group. Uh, Chris Lockhead and a guy named Dave Peterson. Uh, Dave Peterson was my CMO at uh, Aggregate Knowledge. Play Bigger is all about category design. It's about when you're starting a new business and you're literally the only person in the business. Like, Daily Fantasy Sports. Literally, there was one company in the early days called FanDuel. And it really is a great book to turn to learn how to position your company so that you are literally the only player in the space. So instead of uh, going into 10-way enterprise software knife fights and answering RFPs, you walk in and say, I'm the only one who sells blank, therefore you have to buy from me. Very good marketing services book. Really teaches you uh, a, a lot about how to actually position your company in a way that you're the only vendor for the product or service. And that is, that is a great way to go. It is way better to be different than better. Being better is really, really hard. Being different is a lot easier. Wow, that sounds like a great book. And so what about a book that impacted you personally? There, there was a book I read years ago called The Burden of Bad Ideas. I honestly don't remember who wrote it. It was probably about, I don't know, early 2010, 2011. The Burden of Bad Ideas is one of my favorite books because it was about how groupthink can really lead to disastrous decisions. And, and what is the burden of bad ideas? It's literally that. Everyone thinks that such, is, such and such is a good idea. Everybody thinks that such and such is a great category to invest in. Everybody thinks that so-and-so should be doing such and such. I hate groupthink. I fight against it all the time in both personal and professional hiring processes, et cetera. And the burden of bad ideas will demonstrate what groupthink will do to destroy your business, your political system, you name it. It's a great book. I'll certainly have to check out both. That's that's awesome. What is your most recent investment that's, of course, public? What makes you excited about it? So I think the most recent publicly announced one is called Hemster. Allison out of New York City great young CEO who, who we just got to meet recently. She is doing a very, very interesting on-demand play in the tailoring space. She figured out a very, very clever go-to-market strategy to build a big army of tailors for on-demand. You know, you go into Nordstrom's, you need to get your shirt altered. They bring in somebody, you wait a half hour till they show up. And then, and then, and then the alteration is or is not right. And then later you realize you bought a couple other pants, et cetera, and you don't know where to go because they'll only tailor the thing that, they, that, that, that you bought in the store. Allison saw this as a huge opportunity because a lot of the companies like the Nordstrom's of the world view the tailoring services as a cost center, not as a value proposition. She says, what if I go aggregate all of the tailors in a, in a geography and make them available, not as a cost center, but potentially as a profit center to these organizations. And what if I allow you to have a direct relationship with those 
uh, tailors who are providing those services after you meet them at a Nordstrom. So it's this very clever B2B2C go-to-market strategy through the big retailers, but then allows to establish a relationship ongoing with the person and also does one other really cool thing, maintains a fit profile for you that is portable across anywhere you shop. So we're really excited about what Allison's doing. I think this could be a, a really big company. And again, in a category that I don't think most people would wake up and go, wow, I need to go innovate in tailoring today, but perfectly built for what Bullpen is and how we invest. That's awesome. So is that only available right now in New York? I think she's in four cities. Uh, and I think she'll be in 10 cities, 10 cities by January. So uh, LA, I know she's in, San Francisco, New York, I think Chicago. Uh, I think that, that she's in all four of them now and will be in a, a, about another six or so cities by January. So uh, look for the service. No, we'll do, we'll do. I think, I, 